At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to tune into our current series, Assembly Required, Building a Case for Church, where we'll see what the Psalms teach us about a life of faith lived in community. Well, I've noticed that a question has been coming up in my mind over and over and over in this crazy year called 2020, and I'm sure it has for you too. Here's the question, what's wrong with the world? What is going wrong with this world? It feels like the culture is moving from one degree of insanity to the next. For most of us, this is the first time we've experienced anything like this in our lifetimes. And every day, a new headline is basically saying, he's losing it, she's lost it, he never had it, he said, she said, they did, they didn't, they should have, and there's more riots and more violence and more destruction. And we know what the underlying issue really is, don't we, church? It's a dirty little three-letter word that people love to point out in others, but have a hard time taking responsibility for themselves. You know what it is? Sin. This issue of sin. Here's how the great 19th century English preacher, the preacher, Charles Spurgeon, described sin. Sin is a lack of conformity to the will of God. Sin is disobedience to God's command. Sin is forgetfulness of the obligation of the relationship which exists between the creature and the creator. I love this definition he has here that sin is a lack of conformity to the will of God. Disobedience to God's divine order of things. Now let me tell you a story. It's a true story. It's an all too common story in terms of the attitudes and what's underneath the surface that comes in all shapes and sizes today. It begins with the powerful man, a man of position, a man of wealth, a man of influence. He was a politician, he was a fighter, he was a musician, he was humble, he was passionate, he was attractive, he was full of faith, he was a celebrity. And one day his friend said it was time to go to work and he said, I've worked hard for years, so for this particular season, I'm going to stay behind and enjoy the successes that I've worked so hard for. So you go on ahead. And over time, he moved away from his healthy rhythms and he moved away from his responsibilities and he moved away from his most important relationships. And over this season of time, his intimacy with God was also lost, and so he chose to seek it out somewhere else. So he took advantage of his power and position. He abandoned his family, and he violated and victimized the wife of one of his friends. This was a life-shattering sin. A few weeks later, she told him she was pregnant. He was struck, he was scared, and he felt like this could compromise really all the things that he'd worked so hard for. So he took advantage of his power and position again. He abandoned his responsibilities to her family and he victimized the woman's husband and had him killed. This was a life-ending sin. 
And he thought he got away with it all until somehow, some way, one of his mentors privately exposes everything and lets him know the devastating generational consequences of his sin. This is the backstory to our passage today. If you have a Bible, please make your way to Psalm 51 with us this morning. Psalm 51, a very famous psalm, of course, written by the powerful man, the man who allowed this sin to enter into his life and did such an offense against these people and ultimately against God. The man's name, of course, is King David. The woman, you know her as Bathsheba. The friend, her husband, Uriah the Hittite. The mentor, Nathan, the prophet. It was John Piper uh, who calls this passage, this particular verse I'm about to read, one of the greatest understatements in all of the Bible. When 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 27 says, The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And honestly, for me, the craziest part of the whole thing is what happens next. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, it said, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. This is insane. When you step back from the story and think about what happened, Uriah was murdered, Bathsheba was abused, the baby will die, and David's sin was put away. It was forgiven just like that. Now before we get to the actual psalm today, we have to deal with this context because when we come to this verse, what does this tell us about God? What kind of God would pardon this type of abuse and violence and deception? This is the kind of thing that causes so many people in our culture, so many people around the world to look at Christianity and say, I don't get it. How can a good God justify forgiving such a horrible sin and then judge other people's sin that doesn't seem near as bad? The Apostle Paul struggled with that same thing. And he helps us out in Romans chapter 3, a very famous passage, when he writes, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me borrow again from Pastor Piper and summarize. Follow this thinking if you would. Let me just teach a little bit on doctrine here to give us the backdrop to this psalm because God is not sweeping David's sin under the rug. That's not what he's doing. God looks down the centuries from the time of David to the death of his son. Jesus would die in David's place so that David's faith in God's mercy and God's future redeeming work unites David with Christ. So at the cross, David's sins are counted as Christ's. And Jesus' righteousness is counted as David's. 
Here's what we need to understand about the story of the Bible, which when you read it through is full of really bad stories, but really, really good news. It is not the measure of your sin that brings God's judgment on you. It is your lack of faith in the judgment Jesus Jesus took on your behalf. And it is not the measure of your righteousness that brings you salvation. It is your confession of sin and trust in Christ that cleanses your soul. So what do we do with all of this? Well, this psalm, it's going to show us, it's a heavy text, but it shows us that cleansing and joy come through confession. Cleansing and joy come through confession. Is your conscience heavy today and overwhelmed by the consequences of your sin? David had already been forgiven from his sin when he wrote this song. But he was still struggling with the brokenness, the guilt, and the shame that his sin created. And I think, if we're honest, we all wrestle with this. We all wrestle with the guilt and the shame that our own sin has brought upon us. And if you put your faith in Jesus, you're already forgiven in Christ. But this accepting of God's cleansing grace and experiencing his joy, the joy of our salvation, sometimes for us that's really hard. My guess is that a whole lot of you here today who are watching today need to experience the freedom confession brings. I think our culture needs to learn a bit more about confession, wouldn't you say? Wouldn't you say this is something that our society and our world and all of us truly need right now? That's what I've noticed as I look around and and not only at the world but also at my own life. And so David starts here. Here's the power of confession. Here's what he's going to say, that confession will move you from the condemnation of your sin to the celebration of salvation. That's the beauty of this text, that confession moves us from the condemnation of our sin to the celebration of our salvation. Here's what he writes beginning in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified and in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Now the first two stanzas here, they help help us see that confession starts with knowing your sin and owning your sin. David writes that he knows his transgressions. He is painfully aware of what his sin has caused And notice he doesn't make excuses. He doesn't talk about what others have done to him. He doesn't talk about his childhood. He doesn't talk about the people that were after him. He doesn't talk about the abuses that he experienced. He doesn't go into all of that. He he, he only talks about what he himself has done. There's no blaming, no minimizing, no justification, no excuses. He accepts responsibility. He personally accepts responsibility. He admits that the depth of his son runs so deep that he was born into it. 
When we come to verse 4, he says something that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. He says, against you and you only, God, have I sinned. How can that be? What about Uriah? What about Bathsheba? What about his wife, his own family? What about the nation? Well, he's not minimizing his sin against them. He's actually doing the opposite. He's emphasizing that sin at its core is against God. Our sin is ultimately against God. Let's go back to Spurgeon for a moment. He went on to write, This is the very essence of sin. Injustice to my fellow creature is truly sin. But its essence lies in the fact that it is sin against God who constituted the relationship which I have violated. In other words, sins against our neighbors is sin against God's image. So when we sin against others, we sin against him, a holy and righteous judge. And while Bathsheba and Uriah, they were ultimately, they were powerless to do anything with it. What could they do? He was the king. They couldn't enact judgment of any kind. So what could they do? Well, David points not to them. He points to God, to God's image, because God was not powerless to take some act of judgment against him. And Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is warning us, friends, that the real consequences to our sin is not what other people can do to us. It's God's judgment upon that sin as a righteous and holy king. And sometimes we don't even really realize the sin that's going on inside of our hearts, inside of our souls. And David references that as well. We don't even know what's happening inside of us. It's so easy for us sometimes to see it in others, isn't it? We all have those people in our lives where we just wish that they would recognize what they're doing. We wish that they would get over the cycle of sin that's causing destruction relationally or within their community or within your family. And yet we're so quick to think that we're not blind ourselves. And this is what verse 6 is after. The word we translate as secret heart refers to a deep hiding place in our soul. So David is saying that there are parts of our soul that we can't even search out. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in justifying ourselves and minimizing our sin and avoiding and deflecting that we no longer see God's truth as truth. We've replaced it with something else all the while thinking that we're hearing from him. We become blind and we need God's truth to break through our blindness. What are those parts of you, those secret parts in our lives, in our soul? that are hidden to others, but we know the attitudes within us. We know what we've been thinking about, what we've been processing, what we've been doing. We need the word of God desperately in our lives. It brings light to our souls. Are you constantly in it? We need Nathans in our lives, friends who can point out those areas within us that need Uh, need redemption, need reconciliation, need confession. Do we have a Nathan? Do we have people speaking into us? This past week, I was watching and reading, I'm sure many of you were as well, about another spat between politicians. 
There were accusations and shots fired and judgment cast and official statements read in the House of Representatives and all the theatrics. Just imagine with, you, with me for a moment. Now, I know this is fantasy, but just imagine with me for a moment what would happen if every representative in the House of Representatives took their hour on the floor and spent the entire hour in confession? What would happen? What would happen if confession broke out across the entire political spectrum? What would happen if they confessed lies and deception, attitudes and greeds were confessed, rivalries, idolatries, jealousies, all confessed? What our culture needs right now is an example to follow, friends. It needs an example to follow, and reconciliation is what we have to offer. We have to practice this ourselves first, and so the point is, it starts here, right here, with you and with me, in the church, with the people who have been given the message of reconciliation. We actually have the answer. We can practice this ourselves. Maybe it starts with your closest relationships, maybe in your family, maybe in your marriage, maybe with your brother and your sister, whoever it might be. This whole mess of a year I know has left plenty of room for all of us to practice confession. Maybe you've made some assumptions about our church. I know that many days over the last several months I've been spending my time with people in our church family, upset. Assumptions made about the church, about the church leaders, and you know what? I have too. Maybe you've reacted out of anger. Maybe you've reacted in frustration or fear about people in your church family. I know I have. And maybe deep down there is some self-righteousness or hard-heartedness that needs confessed. Here's the point. If followers of Jesus do not practice the ways of Jesus, then the world will never recognize, recognize their need of Jesus. So we must practice the ways of Jesus to show the world Jesus. And that starts with confession, with recognizing who we are. Knowing and owning our sin leads us to a clean conscience and a joyful heart. Look at verse 7 with me as he goes on. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. The third stanza here helps us see that David begged for inner transformation. Transformation is the fruit of confession. That's the result, that as we confess, we are transformed through the Spirit. We can keep our attitude and our heart in the garbage, or we can swallow our pride and confess our sin and experience the godly changes that come with it. David writes here, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop, it was a wild bush 
that was used by the Israelites in purification rituals. It's a very robust meaning in the Old Testament. The Israelites used hyssop, just one story, to sprinkle the blood of the sacrificed lamb over their doorposts the night before they were released from Egypt as slaves. So it was the night of Passover when they used hyssop to spread the blood of that pure sacrificial lamb across their doorpost. And of course, when they did this, the blood was a symbol that God would pass over their sin. It's a word we call atonement. He would cover their sin by looking on the pure sacrifice of another. And David here is begging God to pass over his sin, to cover his sin, and make him clean, to hide his face from his sin. And when you take the posture of repentance to God in this way, then God will do the work. He'll do it in us. God will clean your heart. God will give you mercy. God will grant you grace. God will uphold you in the power of his spirit. God will fill you with the joy of your salvation. Confession leads to this place of joy and a cleansed heart. I've noticed during this whole COVID season that there's all these people that are renovating their homes. And if you know how to fix things, it's great. I mean, you have a lot of extra time, and so you could take that time and use it to, you know, update something within your home. If you don't know how to fix things like me, then you just spend a lot of time and money, and your whole reward is simply frustration. So you get nothing else out of the act. But when it comes to personal transformation, the truth is when it comes to our hearts, this is not a renovating project that any of us can handle. The only one who has the skill to transform the human heart is the one who created it. The question for us is, are we asking God to transform us? Are we willing to allow him to continue to transform us? Or are we just asking him to transform everybody around us? It's the irony of all ironies when people claim to be transformed by Christ and they think that that transformation stops the moment they place their faith in Jesus. That once they've been given that new life, salvation through faith, that that's the transformation that happens, and then there's really no further need of change. The thing is, once we place our faith in Jesus, that's just the beginning. It's a process called sanctification, that as we go through time in our walk with Jesus Christ, we become more like him. So we should be people who are constantly being transformed, every day being transformed by the power of the Spirit, becoming new people that better reflect Jesus. So again, we model that humility to the world. It starts with us. Is it hard work? Yes, of course it is. Does it hurt getting exposed all the way down to the studs? Yeah, we hate it. But what is the result? What what is the result of all of that work of God in our hearts? The result according to this passage, the result according to the scriptures is joy. The joy of our salvation. Is that worth it to you? Is that something that you're after? Do you want to trade in that bitterness, that resentment, all of that guilt and all of that shame for something much better? I do. 
That's what we're after here. That's what the gospel can do. That Jesus, the humble carpenter from Nazareth, came to remodel souls, to renovate hearts. He died to cover your sin, atone for your sin. He died to clean your heart. He died to give you mercy. He died to grant you grace. He rose from the dead to prove he has the power to uphold you. He rose so his spirit would be sent. He rose to fill you with the joy of your salvation. If you haven't been transformed by confessing Christ as your Lord and Savior, respond today in your seat, in your home, in your car, wherever you are, respond today and receive the lasting eternal forgiveness that comes through confession. That's where it starts. Finally, confession leads to celebration. Look at the last few verses, starting in verse 13. He writes, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Celebrate God's salvation. That's where this journey leads. The fourth stanza shows us that when we experience God's deliverance, when we understand God's grace, our response, church, is worship. Verse 13, when we are transformed by the grace of the gospel and filled with the joy of the gospel, we will share the gospel. Uh, Verse 14, we will sing aloud of God's righteousness. Verse 15, we will open our lips and declare praise. Verse 17, we will offer up our broken lives as an offering. We will bring God a contrite heart, knowing he will not abandon us. It seems like celebration and confession are mutually exclusive terms. Like you really can't get the one from the other, but that's just not the case. The scriptures actually show us that when we confess who we are and confess what Christ has done, our hearts can't help but respond in worship. It's not that we have overcome our sin, but rather that God has overcome our sin through Christ. The psalm closes with this idea of bulls being brought to the altar. The altar, of course, it was a picture of confession. It was a picture of sacrifice, but it was much more than that. The altar pointed to our need of confession, the reality of sin in our lives, but more than that, it also pointed to this picture of salvation, of redemption, of reconciliation. Is your conscience heavy and overwhelmed by the consequences of sin. My friends, this morning, the great news is it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. 
Cleansing and joy come through confession. Confession will move you from the condemnation of your sin to the celebration of your salvation. And when, you, when you've confessed, you can bury your shame. It's dead at the cross. You can bury your guilt. It's covered at the cross. You can bury your sorrow. Replace it with joy. Bury your sins. You've been made new. Your soul has been resurrected in Jesus Christ. That's good news. That's where confession goes. You should respond with some kind of a clap because that's what we've gotten through the gospel. Because when we realize the grace of God, that's when we can lead ourselves to great worship. If we're like, you know, yeah, God's grace is okay. You've missed the whole thing. I mean, God's grace is incredible. What a savior. What a savior that he would come, that he would sacrifice himself, that he would take our burdens, he would take our cross, he would take our guilt, he would take our shame, and he would say, this is how you will no longer have to die. I will die for you, and you will have life in my righteousness through faith. Friends, this is good news. We need to be people of confession. What is God saying to you today? Where does he need to work in your heart, in your life? What do you need to bring before the altar and lay down at the foot of the cross and say, God, I know I failed you, but I'm so grateful for the grace of Jesus. And then we stand in the freedom of our faith and we celebrate his salvation. That is our call today. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for this day and this word Father, we want to model confession in this world. Our world is desperate for it. Father, help us to know it starts with each of us. And it moves beyond us to our families, to our church. And Father, through our example, through people that you have entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation, through our confession, let us bring good news to the people in this world. Let us celebrate the fact that we are saved. Let us reflect on the fact that you are a wonderful, amazing, powerful Savior. You are still at work and all that is going on around us just gives us opportunity to see Jesus. So Father, help us to communicate his truth to others. Help us to start in our own souls and to lay down every sin that hinders Restore our hearts. Create in us a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to us, restore to me the joy of our salvation. We bring it all to you today. Father, I pray that if there be any who need to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, that they would confess Christ now. Confess what he has done confess what they and all of us are not able to do to atone for our sin to renovate our heart to bring about spiritual transformation and father help us to rise in the power of the resurrection and the joy of the lord we pray all these things in jesus powerful name amen would you stand let's sing together 
thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today.